and there will be coffee break and lunch is being served over in Fellowship Hall. And Fellowship Hall is the building over that way from the sanctuary so you can go out the back door here or go back out through the side door through the kitchen. If you have any questions, look for the folks with the name tags and they'll be glad to help you. The restrooms are right to my left in the hallway here and there are also more restrooms over in the fellowship hall when we get over there. There are going to be audio tapes made of all of the lectures and they will be available. You can order them before you leave if you're interested. They'll be for sale I think for four or five bucks a copy. So please, I think at the registration table is probably in the vestry, which is the room over there, is where you can sign up to order those. And again, we're happy to have Marcus Borg with us as we continue to hear more about his book, um, The God We Never Knew. And at this point, I'll turn it over to Marcus, and um, he will open us with some, I think, some prayer and centering time, and then we'll move into the lectures. Marcus. Well, good morning to you. And uh, it's nice to be back with you. I had a good night's rest last night, and I want to welcome you to this uh, second lecture in this series and to this day's worth of uh, talks and conversation together. And I want to begin the day with a bit of centering time together. Um, I do that in part because I think that the study of theology and scripture in the context of the church should be done within the framework of prayer. I don't have any empirical data that suggests that it really makes a difference, but I feel that it does myself, and I'm always nourished by uh, uh, praying with a group of people, and so I do it for that reason, too. And the form I want to use today is a very simple form. I call it, I don't know if it has an official name or not, but I call it sitting silently in the presence of Scripture, and I want to take a few minutes to introduce you to what this uh, centering time is about. And basically what I will do uh, is I will read a small portion of scripture to you. It happens to be one of the shortest psalms and one of my favorite psalms. It's only three verses long, and so you will hear it read about three times with roughly a minute to a minute and a half of silence between each reading of the psalm. Now, in that silence, I don't want you to worry about doing something. Uh, the purpose of the silence is not to think hard about what you've just heard or figure out what you've just heard, but rather the purpose of the silence is simply to enable you to sit silently in the presence of these words of Scripture that they might become words of life for us. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've had any um, experience or training with meditation, you really don't need to hear anything more of what I have to say about this exercise. But just in case this is somewhat new to some of you, let me give you a few tips about um, how, um, uh, how best to become quiet inside, okay? So um, let me do some explanation, and as I do the explanation, I'll gradually be leading you into that place of internal silence as well. First of all, you will find it helpful to sit up as straight as possible with your back as straight as possible. A uh, bent spine is um, not conducive to becoming silent inside. I think many of you are familiar with uh, different prayer postures and meditation postures in uh, a number of traditions, the um, lotus position, the Carmelite kneeling position, and so forth. 
what one of my colleagues calls the Protestant crouch, which is sitting down, leaning forward with your head down and so forth, is probably the least effective way of uh, entering into a place of internal quiet and silence. So, uh, you'll find it helpful to sit with your spine as straight as possible. You also will find it helpful to um, uncross whatever you might have crossed. If you want to have your hands touching, that's perfectly fine, but legs crossed or arms crossed, um, again, uh, don't work very well for this. And you will also find it helpful to close your eyes. We take in about 90% of our sensory information through our eyes and therefore can easily become distracted with our eyes open. And um, and now I actually will begin leading you into the silence. So um, again, back as straight as possible and uh, eyes closed. And now um, you will find it helpful to breathe moderately deeply. Shallow breathing generates anxiety. You might remember that if uh, you didn't know that before because as we move through the day, whenever we find ourselves breathing shallowly, we may find ourselves becoming more anxious and you can relieve anxiety by, again, breathing relatively deeply. And as you breathe relatively deeply on the uh, exhalation, you might simply try to let go of whatever you have brought with you today, whether it's uh, tiredness or whether it's um, um, anger at some driver that you encountered on the way over here, or whether it's uh, lists of things that you need to do later in the day, and just let go of all of that and feel yourself becoming quieter and quieter inside. And now I will lead you into the reading of the psalm. O Yahweh, my God, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a child quieted at its mother's breast like a child that is quieted is my soul. O Yahweh, my God, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a child quieted at its mother's breast, like a child that is quieted is my soul. O Yahweh, my God, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a child quieted at its mother's breast, like a child that is quieted is my soul. O Israel, O my people, hope in Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world. Fill my mind with your peace and my heart with your love. In your name, O Christ, our body and our blood, our life and our nourishment.
Well, brief roadmap of the morning before I begin. Uh, we, will, we will take a uh, coffee break. I assume, Diane, there's coffee at some point this morning. I've never been in a church that doesn't have coffee, so I hadn't asked, but uh, it seemed a safe assumption. So this first session will go until roughly about uh, 10.20, something like that, and then we'll take a break, and uh, session two will uh, start a little bit before 11 o'clock. And let me uh, introduce this morning's first talk by relating it to what we did last night. Last night, uh, as uh, most of you know, I talked about concepts of God and why they matter. And most centrally, I talked about the contrast between two fundamentally different ways of thinking about God. And indeed, this contrast is the first of the primary of the two primary contrasts that shapes both my book and these lectures this weekend. Namely, thinking of God as a supernatural being out there versus thinking of God as the encompassing spiritual reality in which we live and move and have our being. And the shorthand semi-technical term for that is panentheism, a panentheistic model of God. It's a way of thinking of God or the sacred that sees God or the sacred as right here as well as more than right here. In this talk, I'll be talking about the second of the primary contrasts that shape the book, and the subject is images of God and why they matter. To differentiate between concepts and images, I see concepts of God as more abstract and images as more concrete, if you will, almost more visual. And so we move from concepts to God to images of God. And I will talk about two primary images of God within the biblical and Jewish Christian traditions and their effects on how we image ourselves and how we image the Christian life and the world. And there'll be two main sections to this talk. First, the dominant or most common image of God in the Western religious tradition and its effects on how we think of ourselves and the world. And then secondly, an alternative set of images of God in the Western tradition and their very different effects. And the format will be very similar to last night. I will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have some question and response time. And as you heard me say last night, that's my favorite uh, part of these occasions because uh, I love that kind of dialogue and it also um, provides an opportunity for something fresh for me to come up. A brief prologue before I move to part one of my lecture. Namely, I want to begin by calling your attention to the multiplicity of images for God in the biblical tradition. The Bible uses many images for God or the sacred, and without trying to be comprehensive, let me simply mention some of them. Many of these images are anthropomorphic, that is, they speak of God in human-like form. Images of God as king, lord, warrior, shepherd, builder, craftsman, parent, mostly father, but sometimes mother, the wise woman, or Sophia, lover, potter, master. Some of these images are non-anthropomorphic, using non-human-like metaphors for God. God is fire, light, cloud, rock, fortress, shield, 
and spirit. And to make a couple of quick comments about other categories into which you can arrange these images. Some are images of distance. God as king is an image of distance, for example. And some are images of nearness, God as parent, especially God as the intimate parent or God as lover. And some of these, of course, are male images. In fact, most of the anthropomorphic images of God are male, which is not terribly surprising since the biblical tradition comes to us out of a patriarchal and androcentric culture. But there are also female images of God, God as mother, as I've mentioned, God as the wisdom woman, God as mother bird, uh, and then there are some uh, uh, nouns in the Hebrew tradition that are not only feminine and gender, but seem to attract uh, uh, female images to them, and I'll say more about that later. Now, the multiplicity of images should alert us at once to an important fact, namely the essential metaphoricity of these images. Multiplicity leads to metaphoricity. I suppose that could be put simpler, but I like that phrase for some reason. And uh, that's an important realization, because when we realize that these are all metaphors, it means that God is not literally one of these, Father, for example, and only metaphorically the others. Rather, they are all metaphors. Now, to say that they are metaphorical is to say that there is something about each of these images that is like God, like the sacred. God is like a king, like a parent, like a warrior, like fire, like light, like a fortress, and so forth. And if we had more time, and this were more of a workshop format, we could now get into small groups, and we could explore questions like, what is it about fire that makes it a good image for God or the sacred? What is it about breath or wind that makes it a good image for God or the sacred? And it's very interesting to associate with those images. And I also want to use the multiplicity of images to illustrate my claim that images of God are correlated with images of ourselves, namely, many of these images are relational. To be very elementary, if God is imaged as shepherd, who are we in relationship to God as shepherd? We are sheep, of course. And if God is imaged as parent, we are children, of course. So there are uh, correlative images of us that go with most of these images of God. So we have a multiplicity of images in the biblical tradition, and yet one of these, has become the dominant, and by dominant here I mean simply the most common image in the Western religious tradition. And the first major section of this lecture will be about that image and its consequences. To give that image a name, I follow the suggestion of a number of scholars who call it the monarchical model or monarchical image of God. And in recent scholarship, this is developed with particular clarity by Sally McFaig in her books, Models of God and the Body of God. So let me now explain to you what the monarchical image or monarchical model of God is. It takes its name from the central image of God that goes with it, namely God as king. And let me mention in passing here, that two of the common, common variants of God as king 
is God as Lord. In the ancient world, a Lord was essentially the same thing as a king. We have a few kings around. We have relatively few lords around. So for many of us, Lord has almost become a name of God. But initially, of course, it meant uh, a figure like a king. And in many cases, the use of the word father in the Christian tradition is a variant of God as king because it's the patriarchal father who is in mind, the little king or the central authority figure in the family who is a little king in relationship to his family. Now, if we ask, what is it about kings in the ancient world that led uh, the image of king to be used as an image for the sacred, there are a number of things. First of all, of course, the king is the number one authority figure in the kingdom. And as such, the king functions as both lawgiver and judge. Moreover, the king, at least the ideal king, is also a protector, though perhaps in actual fact, the king more frequently fleeces his subjects and rips them off. But ideally, the king is a protector and therefore a warrior. Um, the image of uh, king also is an image of distance. Think of the relationship between ordinary people and kings in the ancient world. The king with his family typically lived on a high place in a fortified uh, castle or palace at a great distance from the people. Ordinary people would seldom see the king except in processions or other uh, occasions of state. Uh, ordinary people uh, didn't hang out the, with the king, were not invited to banquets in the royal palace and so forth. So the image of king is an image of considerable distance. And finally, of course, um, the image of uh, king is a male image for the sacred as well. Now, this way of thinking about God as king, lord, or patriarchal father has a number of effects. It goes with attitudes toward nature, society, and gender. And it also has a fourth effect that I'll identify in a couple of minutes, but let me speak first of all about the attitudes toward nature, society, and gender that go with an image of God as king. With regard to nature, the monarchical model of God leads to a domination over nature attitude. God as king is separate from nature. Uh, God as king creates the world separate from God's self. Nature is the creation of God, but it's not sacred in its own right. It is, in a sense, nothing special within this model. And speaking of God as a, uh, um, a, a king who is separate from nature and who has created nature outside of himself brings about what the... Uh, uh, social historian Max Weber calls the disenchantment of nature. Okay, nature is seen as a purely secular realm, and thus, especially since the Enlightenment, we have seen a profound secularization of nature in Western culture. Moreover, it's not simply that God as king is dominant over nature, but we, created in the image of God, are given domination over nature. We function like little kings in in relationship to the natural world. And this leads also to an anthropocentric view of nature. Anthropocentric means simply human-centered, and we see nature as being there for us, and it is there for our use and so forth. Secondly, the image of God as king goes with political systems of domination. 
the image of course originates in a hierarchical political order that is nobody spoke of god as king until there were already earthly kings it would have had no meaning and thus um, the image of god as king emerges in hierarchical political systems of domination moreover most commonly the monarchical model of god has been used to legitimate the existing social or political order it does this by claiming that uh, uh, god as king has delegated authority to the earthly king who in many traditions including the old testament is spoken of as the son of god as the chosen of god as the anointed one of God and thus the hierarchical political order is identified with the will of God and this has continued in Western history in the history of Western Europe for example with the tradition of the divine right kings and the notion that the powers that be are ordained by God finally the image of God as king goes with the domination of male over female Historically, this way of thinking about God emerged within patriarchal societies. And a patriarchal society, of course, is a hierarchical society in which uh, one male is dominant, and uh, that male and the ruling class rule over all other men and women and children. And this structure is replicated within the patriarchal family so that the father in the patriarchal family is like a little king in relationship to his family. Moreover, within this way of thinking, the male in the history of Western philosophy and theology has most commonly been identified with spirit, mind, and reason, and the female identified with nature, matter, and body. The female has been seen as closer to the earth and the male as closer to God, and thus this way of thinking about God has typically been used to legitimate the domination of male over female. And if you're skeptical about that, it is still one of the primary legitimations for no women priests within the Catholic Church. If God is male, as Mary Daly remarked over 20 years ago, then the male is God. So historically speaking, the monarchical model of God has typically gone with all of these domination systems, domination over nature, uh, domination systems in society, domination of male over female. Now, before I leave that point, I want to make an important qualifying point. There is also a subversive use of the image of God as king or lord in the biblical tradition. And we find this subversive use, especially in Moses, the prophets, and Jesus. The way that image is used subversively is the emphasis is placed upon God as king, meaning there are no other legitimate kings. If God is king, then Pharaoh is not king. If God is king, then the kings of Israel who reintroduce a repressive domination system into Israel are not kings. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not Lord. And that is a very important subversive use of this image. It's like the subversive use of God as Father in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, where Jesus tells his followers, you shall not call anyone on earth 
father, for you have but one father who is in heaven. If God is father, then the patriarchal father is not father. If God is king, then the other kings are not kings. My colleague John Dominic Crossan has a particularly effective way of making this point. He asks us to imagine Christians in Germany in the 1930s and early 40s referring to Jesus as Führer. And that's not for us a terribly attractive name for Jesus, but the point in that context would be Jesus is Führer, that guy ain't. Okay? That's the subversive use of this kind of imagery. And it's, it's, it's quite strong in the biblical tradition itself. But in most of Christian history, it is not the subversive use of that image that has been dominant. It's been the legitimating use of that image that has been dominant. The other major effect of the monarchical model of God that I want to speak about is the central dynamic that it introduces into the spiritual life and the Christian life and not so much in society but within ourselves. And to see this I need to, need to um, uh, begin by asking a key question. Who are we in relationship to God as king? I've already mentioned that in relationship to God as shepherd we are sheep, but who are we in relationship to God as king? Well, we are subjects, of course, and thus, in a sense, not much. We are peons, or peasants, if you will. And as subjects, what do we owe to God as king? Well, we owe loyalty and obedience. And of course, we're not very good at either one of those, and so we become disloyal and disobedient subjects. And this introduces a um, particular dynamic into the Christian life. Namely, the monarchical model of God images our relationship to God within the framework of law. God gives the law, and we have disobeyed the law. We are rebellious subjects and unworthy servants. We are sinful and guilty, and we deserve punishment. And this, of course, is life under God, the lawgiver and judge, one of the central functions of the king. And to relate this back to my early childhood image of God from last night, this is Pastor Thorson, the finger shaker. Uh, God, the finger shaker, is God, the lawgiver and judge. And we are the ones who have not measured up to what God would have us be. This is the God of requirements and it turns Christianity into a religion of requirements. Now, this understanding in ancient Israel got institutionalized in the temple and the sacrificial system centered in Jerusalem. Because we are disobedient subjects who have sinned against God, compensation must be offered. We are unable to provide compensation through our moral behavior, and so sacrifice is provided instead. And then eventually, uh, with the birth of Christianity, uh, Jesus comes to be understood as the sacrifice for our sins, and thus Jesus meets the requirements for us. But ironically enough, typically in Christian history, this has led to a new requirement, namely believing that Jesus is the sacrifice. And uh, by believing that Jesus died for our sins and through sincere repentance, 
we are made all right with God, the lawgiver and judge. But notice that the framework of requirements remains. The requirements are still met. This means that the Christian life becomes one of constantly being on trial before God, the lawgiver and judge, before God, the finger shaker. The Christian life becomes one of measuring up to God's requirements. To put this in more psychological but still, I think, accurate terms, the Christian life becomes life under the punitive superego identified as the voice of God. To unpack that sentence for just a couple of minutes, the superego, whether you like that term or not, refers to something that we all have, unless we are narcissistic sociopaths. Uh, namely, the superego is simply that critical voice within our head. The superego is the storehouse of oughts or shoulds within our heads. We get those oughts or shoulds from our parents, from our culture, perhaps from our religious tradition if we've been strongly socialized within one and so forth. And life under the superego, life under that critical voice is basically life under God, the lawgiver and judge, or if we become quite secular people, it's life under the internalized voice of our culture. So uh, this way of being exists in secular as well as religious forms. Now, this is the most widespread understanding of God in the Christian tradition. I'm convinced it's not the authentic voice of the Christian tradition and not the authentic way of imaging God, but it is the most common, and it makes Christianity a religion of sin, guilt, and forgiveness, makes it unpalatable to many and unbelievable to many. By the way, um, before I leave this point, I want to note that it is this whole understanding that Jesus undermines and subverts in his teaching as a wisdom teacher. And I think it is also this way of understanding God that the authentic Christian gospel of grace or Christian message of grace similarly undermines and subverts. This leads me then to the second main section of this talk, namely alternative images of God within the biblical tradition and how they affect our perceptions of ourselves and the world. And I'm going to mention four of these. Uh, and I begin with one that actually provides me with the name that I use for this other model of God or this other image of God, a spirit model of God or a way of imaging God primarily as spirit. And I want to note parenthetically that I had some difficulty trying to figure out what to call this way of imaging God. The label monarchical model is very natural for the other one because of the predominance of, of uh, kingship imagery. And uh, after wrestling with this for a while, I finally decided on a spirit model, in part because in the biblical tradition, spirit is not an abstraction as it tends to be in English, but it's actually a pretty concrete visual image. And I can show that to you by commenting about the meanings of the Hebrew word for spirit, which is ruach, it's kind of fun to say, and the Greek uh, translation of uh, the Hebrew word ruach, which is pneuma, 
from which we get, amongst other things, pneumatic and pneumonia, but don't think especially of pneumonia at this point. It's not a very attractive notion. Now, in both the Hebrew Bible, Ruach, and the New Testament, Pneuma, uh, those two words mean spirit, of course, but they also mean wind and breath. Now think of wind and breath, especially when you think of both of them at the same time as an image for the sacred. Spirit or the sacred is like the wind which is outside us and all around us as well as that, like the breath that is within us. Breath in a way is wind inside the body and wind in a way is like breath outside the body. And not only does this point to a panentheistic model of God, God is the encompassing spirit in which we live and move and have our being and who breathes us, but also uh, it's interesting to think of what wind and breath were to ancient people. The wind was perceived as something non-material. I don't think ancient people thought of the wind as molecules in motion. They would have uh, seen it as non-material and yet as manifestly real, powerful, having effects. And the same thing with breath. Uh, the breath would be like the life force within us. And so God as spirit is the wind outside us and the breath, the life force within us. Now, this spirit model of the sacred, besides being a panentheistic model, is clothed in the biblical tradition with a number of more specific images. And I turn to the first of these, and thus the second of the four that I'm going to be mentioning to you. This is the image of God as lover. And this is a very powerful image. It's a major theme of the biblical tradition, and I want to refer to a number of instances in which biblical texts speak of God as lover. One of these is uh, perhaps the best-known Bible verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16, that Bible verse that you see held up behind the goalposts at uh, NFL football games during extra point attempts and field goal attempts. And the opening lines of that verse express this notion perfectly. For God so loved the world. And in Latin, it's even more beautiful. The Latin... Um, it's, it's Jerome's Vulgate translation. The Latin version of John 3.16 begins this way, Sic Deus delexit mundum, for God so delights in the world. God, the lover who delights in the creation of God. And this is very similar to phrases from the Psalms, such as, we are the apple of God's eye, we are the people of God's hand. The prophet Hosea uses some of the boldest imagery for God as lover. In the second chapter of Hosea, the prophet um, speaking for God in the first person, so the I in what I'm about to read to you is uh, um, uh, God speaking in the first person. In the second chapter of Hosea, um, Hosea says on behalf of God, and the object of address here is Israel, okay? I will allure you. The Hebrew word here is actually seduce. I will seduce you. I will allure you 
and bring you into the wilderness and speak tenderly to you. And the valley of trouble shall become the door of hope. I will betroth you to me forever. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, thou art my beloved. Or in the 62nd chapter of Isaiah, the prophet, again speaking in the name of God, um, says to um, um, Israel and to the land which Israel occupies, you shall no more be called desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And the Hebrew word there is hepzibah, which an earlier generation of Christians would sometimes uh, name their daughters after. Uh, but Hepzibah means my delight is in her and your land shall be called married and the Hebrew word there is Beulah Beulah land is the land that is married to God the lover and finally in the biblical tradition we find this lover beloved imagery in the Song of Songs sometimes better known as the Song of Solomon that song with all of its erotic imagery which may originally have been a secular love poem, we're not sure, but it has been understood within both the Jewish and the Christian traditions as a story of the relationship between God, the lover, and us, the beloved. And all of this leads the um, uh, early church historian Roberta Bondi from Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, in her, if you haven't read Roberta Bondi, I really commend her to you. Uh, uh, one of her books is called Memories of God, a wonderful book, and then her most recent book is called In Ordinary Time. And in that most recent book, Bondi has a section on lover-beloved imagery and concludes that section by saying, God is besotted with us. And if we ask, who are we in relationship to God as lover? Well, obviously, we're not a defendant on trial. We are the beloved of God. And think of how different that is from thinking of oneself primarily as uh, sinful and guilty and by nature um, sinful and unclean and so forth. Another set of images... Uh, very different from the monarchical model of God, is the image of God as mother and us as the children of God. And of course, you can be adult children of a mother as well as very young children of a mother. And it might be helpful for us to think of ourselves as adult children and not simply as little helpless children. We find some passages in the biblical tradition that speak explicitly of God as mother. We also find themes in the biblical tradition that point this way. One of these themes, which I develop in my work on Jesus and then um, uh, also mention in the book on God, is uh, the image of God as compassionate. The prophets of ancient Israel frequently speak of the compassion of God, and for Jesus it is the central quality of God. And what is interesting about the word compassion is that in both Hebrew and Aramaic, it is semantically related to the word for womb. Um, technically, the Hebrew word for compassion is the plural 
of a noun which in its singular form means womb. To speak of God as compassionate is thus to say that God is like a womb. God is womb-like. And obviously it's a female image for God and suggests not only that God is the source of life, but also the nourisher of life. And moreover, in the biblical tradition, compassion is also associated with feeling. God as the compassionate one feels for the creation what a mother feels for her children. Feelings of tenderness and also feelings of outrage when something threatens the lives of her children. And so compassion is both a feeling as well as a quality. God feels for the children of her womb, feels our suffering, even participates in our suffering. And I remember thinking about this some years ago when I was in Europe and was struck um, by how many pietas there are scattered around Europe. Now, the pieta, the most famous one, of course, is Michelangelo's pieta, which is in uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. The pieta is simply, um, typically their statues, is simply that figure of Mary holding the dead Jesus in her lap and mourning over Jesus, okay? I was struck by the fact that the prevalence of all of those pietas may reflect this image of the cosmic Mary, who is the same as divine Sophia, if you will, grieving the ongoing suffering of Christ in the world. God, the compassionate one who suffers with her children. In addition to um, this uh, motif of God the Compassionate One and, and the Pieta perhaps being God the Compassionate One grieving the ongoing suffering of Christ, there is another major female image for the divine in Scripture. And this is the image of God as the Wisdom Woman or as Divine Sophia. And for those of you for whom this uh, image may be unfamiliar, I'll simply note that in Jewish wisdom literature, some of it in uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Old some of it in the apocryphal literature, which Christians accept as canonical, though the Jewish tradition does not, the wisdom of God is frequently personified as a woman. And the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. Uh, in Hebrew, it's chokmah, which is also a female noun, but Sophia has uh, become the term conventionally used by scholars now because, uh, helpfully, it's also a woman's name in English. So the wisdom of God is personified in female form as a woman, and the wisdom of God, that is Sophia, is brought into the closest possible relationship with God. In the book of Proverbs, Sophia is with God when God creates the world and the world is created through Sophia. In the Wisdom of Solomon, an apocryphal work written roughly in the first century BCE, uh, Sophia is given all the attributes of God, formless, eternal, etc., pure spirit and whatnot. And then when the author of the Wisdom of Solomon retells the history of Israel, where we would expect the author to use the word God or Yahweh, the author uses the word Sophia. So it is Sophia who brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. 
It is Sophia who parts the sea that they might pass through. It is Sophia who journeys with them in the wilderness. Now, the point of the author is not, uh, you guys thought that God was God, but Sophia is really God. No, the point of the author is uh, that it's perfectly appropriate to use female imagery for the divine. We are dealing with a complementarity of images here and not substitution of images. And it's a very striking image of God or the divine. God as the wisdom woman, Sophia, who is the source of our life, who invites us to live by her wisdom, who invites us to sit at her table, to eat her bread and drink her wine. In passing here, I can't resist telling a little story from when I was uh, in Diane's church in Modesto, California about three years ago. I had been talking a little bit about Jesus and Sophia during one of the day lectures, and that evening there was a reception at a parishioner's home, maybe 20 or 30 of us standing around drinking California wine and eating cheese and crackers and so forth. And suddenly in the midst of this, with no warning, uh, a woman burst into song. And she had a very fine voice, and I don't, but I'll try it, okay? She burst into song, and this is what she sang. Sophia, I've just met a god named Sophia, and suddenly that name, you, you, you can fill out the rest of it, so, and suddenly that name will never be the same. It works perfectly. Say it's soft, and it's almost like praying, you know. Well, uh, those are female images for the divine in scripture and notice how they're images of closeness and intimacy compared to that monarchical model. And the last of the images with which the spirit model is clothed in scripture is the image of God as journey companion. I wish I could find a single word for this, so far I haven't, but God as journey companion. And again, this is a theme that runs throughout the Hebrew Bible as well as the New Testament. The fathers and mothers of Israel, Abraham and Sarah, and their descendants are nomads, people of no fixed abode who wander. And in the stories of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, God is the one who journeys with them. And of course, in the Exodus story, God is the one who not only brings them out of Egypt, but journeys with them through the wilderness as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And in the New Testament, the classic journey story is the story of discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus means not primarily to be a student of a teacher, but to be somebody who journeys with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. And of course, a very famous New Testament journey story is the Emmaus Road story, one of those Easter stories where the risen Christ journeys with us as a stranger in our midst, whether we recognize that or not, know that or not. One of the names of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew specifically, is Emmanuel, which is not a proper name in Hebrew, but is a phrase that means God with us. God is the one who travels with us. And all of this suggests that God is the one who is right here with us as journey companion. Let me um, tell a little story that helps to make that point. Some years ago, I was... Uh, 
sitting in the waiting room of an Episcopal church uh, waiting for an appointment with the rector. And the waiting room um, uh, had a number of meeting rooms opening off of it. And in one of these meeting rooms, the worship committee of the parish uh, was holding, uh, I don't know if it was their monthly meeting or weekly meeting. And so I could overhear their conversation without being part of it. And they were talking about the need to introduce uh, more inclusive language into the liturgy, which is a real problem for Episcopalians because we have the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, we don't make up the liturgy every Sunday. It's all printed out there, and you can revise that thing only about 20, every 25 years or so because it's very expensive to do and so forth. And the last revision was done right before the concern for inclusive language really became a central concern of the mainline churches. And so all of the pronouns for God are he and so forth. Anyway, the worship committee was saying, we've got to do something about that. We need to have more female imagery for God. We, we, we're beginning to find those exclusively male pronouns for God to be unacceptable. And so they talked through some of the options. Uh, one option was, well, um, maybe uh, some Sundays we could just substitute she all the way through where it says he, like an alternating Sundays do she instead of he. And, and people thought, well, that almost have to be explained every Sunday, and that gets a bit awkward. So then they thought about, well, how about if we did it every other paragraph? You know, he in one paragraph, she in the next paragraph. And they also thought that might be a bit klutzy and still would require explanation. And, and you can kind of imagine how the conversation went, because many of you have been part of conversations like that. And then finally, in some exasperation, one of them said, well, whatever we do, we can't use the word it because whatever God is, God isn't an it. And as I was listening to this, it suddenly struck me. The problem, in a way, is not so much whether to use he, she, or it. The problem is third-person language. When do we use third-person language about somebody? We use third-person language to speak about somebody who is not there. And if we take seriously that God is the journey companion, if we take seriously these images of intimacy, spirit, the wisdom woman, God is lover, if we take seriously a panentheistic model for God, then the appropriate pronoun to use for God or the sacred is you. You meaning somebody who is right here, who is as close to us as we are to ourselves. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that as a recipe for liturgical reform. I think we will continue to use third-person language for God. But the most appropriate language for God, if one takes seriously these images of nearness, is you. God is the presence who is right here. Well, let me begin to move to my conclusion. And I want to do that by returning very briefly to the central contrast that I've been developing in this talk. The contrast between the monarchical model of God and this spirit relational model of God. This contrast is a central tension running throughout the history of the Christian and the biblical traditions. And depending upon which of those images of God or models of God you emphasize, 
you virtually get two different religions both using Christian language the image of God the king as one who has requirements leads to a law understanding of the Christian tradition with Jesus as the sacrifice for sins not really modifying the legal context at all but simply fulfilling and satisfying the legal requirement and then you get an image of the Christian life as satisfying God's requirements even if that requirement is reduced to believing in Jesus and sincere repentance and then you get a dividing up of the world into those who are believers and those who aren't believers into the in-group and the out-group and you basically without I hope uh, being unkind to our conservative and fundamentalist Christian brothers and sisters, you basically get the religious right. Where being a Christian means living this way. <laughs> the other model of God, which is a relational model of God, is a model of the sacred that doesn't talk about divine requirements and measuring up but it's an invitation into a relationship with the sacred that begins to change our lives in profound ways. It seems to me that the relational images of God, the spirit model, and all the ways in which that is clothed, it seems to me that these are rich images of God and they dramatically affect how we think of ourselves and the religious life. Rather than God being a distant being, God is right here. Rather than God being the lawgiver whose requirements must be met and whose justice must be satisfied, God is the lover who yearns to be in relationship to us. And rather than sin, guilt, and forgiveness being the central dynamic of the Christian life, the central dynamic becomes relationship. To turn and enter into relationship with the one who gave us life who has loved us from the beginning and who loves us whether we know that or not and who journeys with us whether we know that or not. And I can think of no better way to end this lecture than with words from the second half of the book of Isaiah, the gospel in the Hebrew Bible, and I also end the chapter in the book where I speak of this theme with these words, so you can find them easily there. But they're wonderful words, and I invite you to simply let yourself be bathed in them. Thus says the Lord, the one who created you, the one who formed you, O Israel. Thus says Yahweh your God, do not be afraid, for I have delivered you, I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overcome you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. You are precious in my sight, and I love you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Thank you very much.
Well, let me suggest uh, that we follow the same procedure as last night and um, in silence uh, so that you can think about what you might want to ask about or talk about. In silence to take a one-minute standing-in-place stretch break and then we'll turn to the Q&A time. Well, um, we have a little bit over 15 minutes for Q&A before we should break for coffee. So what would you like to ask about by way of clarification or implication or amplification or add by way of comment yourself, please? Mm -hmm. Okay, let me repeat the comment uh, in crystallized form for all of you. Uh, the suggestion is that in looking for a, um, a shorthand way of expressing journey companion, uh, a request that I made, you'll recall, uh, that perhaps we might think of partner as an image for God, um, that uh, we are invited to share in the mission of God, therefore invited to, sh to enter into a kind of partnership with God, um, I also thought, of course, of the uh, um, uh, meaning of partner within the context of gay and lesbian relationships, which is kind of nice, too. It suggests a relationship of attachment. I mean, there was a time when partner, for me, suggested primarily a business relationship, you know. So I can see some real possibilities for that. I would probably, uh, myself, um, continue to use something like journey companion, uh, in order to connect more closely to the biblical motif of journey, but then use partner as one way of unpacking what it means to be a journey companion, perhaps. So I appreciate that comment. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, please. Mm -hmm.
Say a bit more about your question. I mean, where, where do you see the problem in doing theology with you language? Right. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I really haven't thought about that. How, was the, how does one do theology? And you're thinking of, uh, of um, uh, you know, writing theology, speaking theology, systematic theology, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, because whenever I say God, in a way I'm using third-person language. Yeah, yeah. Well, never having thought about that one before, you'll hear what I've been able to come up with in the 15 seconds while I've been spinning my wheels talking here. Um, <clears throat> I, I might begin by pointing out that theology is not the first language of religion, but the second language of religion. And here I'm thinking of Paul Ricoeur's very useful schematization when he speaks of the origin of religious language. Uh, the schematization is a um, three-part schematization in which religious experience is primary and then the language of story, which includes both the language of myth and symbol, is the first language of religious experience. Let me tell you about something that happened to me, or something like that. And then conceptualization, or thought, uh, and therefore doctrine theology, which uses the language of thought and conceptualization, um, that's the third element in the schema and the second language of religion. So the first language of religious experience is story. The second language of, religious, of, of, of uh, religion is, um, is, is thought or doctrine. That has the very helpful effect of, in a way, relativizing doctrine. Makes it clear that doctrine is not the thing itself. So that Maybe in theology and doctrine and so forth, perhaps the use of third-person language is unavoidable, but if we want language that stays as close to religious experience itself, which is not theology, but a different kind of language, that's the setting in which you language is most immediately appropriate. Now, I might come up with a better response than that, given further time to think about it, but uh, that, that's where I would start thinking about it, I think. Let me see if I can alternate genders here. Is there a... Yeah, please. Hmm? I'm I can imagine... Uh, the question is whether I've thought of the implications of these two families of images for uh, the worship service and the role of the minister. I can imagine what you mean by the worship service. Say a bit more about what you might have in mind by asking about the role of the minister. Okay, so it's, it's not so much the hierarchical or non-hierarchical role of the minister, 
I mean, like, again, I think of Pastor Rockney, uh, not Rockney, Thorsten, Thorsten, the fellow I mentioned last night, the finger shaker with his unadorned black robe, who in our experience wears an unadorned black robe. The only person who does is a judge. <laughs> and of course, he perfectly embodied the judge with his finger shaking and all of that. And it became an image of God as an authoritarian figure and so forth. But you weren't thinking primarily of the hierarchical or non-hierarchical role of the clergy. I, get, I, I assume. Um, well, I think that um, I think it has a lot of implications for how we do our worship. I think, for example, uh, it would lead to, and this has probably already happened in most UCC churches, it would lead to a de-emphasis upon the, the, the uh, language of uh, sin and forgiveness as the central element of the worship service. In my own tradition, the Episcopal tradition, uh, unfortunately, uh, in the liturgy itself, which is almost impossible to change without a change in the Book of Common Prayer, which will be coming, but probably still 10 years away, um, at the center of the um, Eucharistic service is still the confession of sins and the language of Jesus as sacrifice. And that really reinforces the monarchical model. Uh, I think it would change that in churches that have free liturgies, that is where you can redesign it, if not every Sunday morning, at least whenever you feel like it needs redesigning, one could uh, complement um, liturgies that do speak about uh, our need for forgiveness. I don't want to get rid of the language of sin completely. I want to make it one of several ways, though, of talking about our predicament. And one could complement it with language that speaks about our predicament as bondage or as alienation and exile, uh, and of God as the one who wills our deliverance from bondage, as God is the one who invites us back from our condition of estrangement to the condition of relationship and so forth. And I see the role of the clergy as well as other, um, um, as, as well as of lay leaders in the church to be through both teaching and preaching to see the Christian gospel as essentially an invitation into a relationship rather than as huh, the way to save your skin. Um, I, 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 uh, last summer I ran into a fellow, uh, I didn't run into him, I saw him, um, and uh, it was some outdoor occasion, maybe it was just Waterfront Park in Portland, and he had a t-shirt on that said, Jesus is the only fire escape. And, 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 and I don't think that's Christian gospel. <laughs> you know, and, and yet, and yet uh, for generations of Christians, that's been one of the primary motivating factors. One other quick follow-on story there. Um, I uh, gave a lecture um, on the monarchical model of God in a city in Oregon about two weeks ago, and uh, uh, the, the next day in my email, I had a message from a man who had been at the lecture who had just recently left a fundamentalist group and was very appreciative of the lecture, but also said, what I'm having trouble imagining is what a Christian sermon would sound like if it's not fear-based. Can you tell me, can you give me an example of how you would preach if you don't have the threat of hell at your disposal? And it just blew me away that somebody who had been in the church a long time, couldn't imagine 
what a sermon that didn't have that as its basis could possibly be about. And so in some ways, we've come a long ways, I think. Yeah. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, I uh, um, um, share some of the concerns reflected in your comment. Do I need to repeat it? Anybody? Okay. Um, and I have not put it that way uh, before this morning. So it's the first time, it, I mean, I was looking at my notes last night, and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to say this too. So it's sort of a test run here to see whether that's a useful way of thinking about it. And I also am not interested in um, uh, contributing to the divisiveness of the Christian church and so forth. And I also affirm that uh, God is uh, larger than any of our contradictions or paradoxes and that God and the Holy Spirit can work through even the most law-oriented form of Christianity. Okay. Having said that, when I hear the emphasis of, again, with apologies if this is offensive shorthand, when I hear the emphases of the Christian right compared to the emphases of at least many mainline denominations, it almost does sound like two foundational different ways of being religious, both of them using the same language and claiming the same tradition. Let me try to make that point uh, one other way. I think the contrast is between a religion of law, which is a religion of requirements, God the lawgiver and judge, etc., etc., um, uh, doing what you need to do now for the sake of eternal salvation later. It's a religion of law versus a religion of grace. And of course, having grown up Lutheran, with Martin Luther as one of my um, chief theological and spiritual mentors really in my life, not just as a child, but continuing, I'm very much aware that for Luther, the decisive breakthrough was a deliverance from the religion of law and requirements to a religion of the grace of God. And he experienced those as two such acutely different ways of being that they virtually are, if not two different religions, two different ways of being Christian, <laughs> two different ways of being religious. Um, so uh, I guess the reason, and I'm not sure if I'll continue to use that language, but the reason I did use the language was to suggest that we are really dealing with a foundational difference here in two ways of envisioning what the Christian life is about. Now, I don't want to say that one of those ways of being religious means you're going to hell. That would be just a return to the requirements uh, <laughs> understanding of things. But uh, um, 
that tension between law and, and grace is um, just a central conflict that I hear running throughout the tradition. So I'll, I'll think hard about what you've said and, and see whether there's any pedagogical purpose to be served by speaking of it as almost being two different religions or whether there's a better way of making the contrast just as clearly without doing it that way. Uh, yes, the young woman there. Yeah. Yeah, the question has uh, to do with uh, perhaps these are rather individualistic sounding images. Uh, how can we make this more of a community relationship with God? To some extent, I'll be talking about that in my th uh, third talk this afternoon, or my afternoon talk today, which will be the third talk. Um, and here, I would simply stress that, um, that is a quick response to your question, I would simply stress that the biblical um, images of us are consistently community images. I mean, in the Hebrew Bible, it's God in relationship to Israel and, of course, to individuals within Israel, but it's Israel who is the beloved of God. And in the New Testament, it's uh, uh, here I think of the church as the bride of Christ. It's uh, the church as community that is the bride of Christ, the bridegroom, and us as individuals within that community is also the beloved of, of uh, God and Christ. And it seems to me that, um, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, that we really need to counter the rampant individualism of contemporary American culture as well as of much contemporary spirituality by recognizing that uh, we are talking about uh, um, a community of people here. And I also would want to talk about how for some of us, and, and uh, maybe even for many of us, uh, that it is through other people that we have our sense of the reality of the spirit, uh, and so that the community itself becomes a mediator of the spirit. And just as on the Emmaus Road, uh, they encounter the risen Christ in this stranger who is journeying with them. And so it's not a disembodied encounter, as it were, but an, an embodied encounter. So I appreciate very much uh, your reminding us all of the community dimension of this. And then I also want to say, yeah, it's a polarity, not, not an opposition but the Christian life moves within that polarity of the individual and God and the community and God. And both focal points, if you will, the individual and the community are central, I think, to an authentic understanding of the Christian life. I think it's possible for an individual to be in relationship with God apart from community. I mean, I think there have been, throughout the history of the church, there have been hermit monks and of course, uh, we all know of people who have spent, uh, not personally, but we all know of people who have spent years in solitary confinement and it's their relationship with God that has sustained them and so forth. 
So uh, I think it's possible for an individual to be in, as it were, a solitary relationship with God. But I don't think it's the normative way within the Christian tradition. And I think we would be uh, foolish, in a way, to um, not make use of the nourishment that is provided by being part of a religious community, a worshiping community. Well, my beeper just went off, and I want to uh, give us ample time for our coffee break. Let's aim for a 20-minute coffee break, which would bring us back together at a quarter to 11. Now, I'm realistic enough to know that they frequently get stretched a little bit longer than that, so I'll tell you already we're not going to start till 10 to 11, but aim for a quarter to 11. And I'm going to start at 10 to 11, whether you're here or not. So we'll see you then. <laughs>